Dan Casey is the Metro columnist for the Roanoke Times. He's been working in the news business since age 11 when he delivered the Newark Evening News in northern New Jersey. In his teens, he worked in a newspaper mailroom and he sold newspaper ads one summer during college. Other jobs he's held? Dishwasher, pizza maker, gas pumper, shoe salesman, apartment complex maintenance man, roofer and landscaper. And in his youth, he was also a Boy Scout and altar boy, but he wasn't a great fit for either role. From 1980 to 1982, Dan worked in Washington, D.C. as a full-time bicycle messenger, mostly serving media outlets like the Associated Press, United Press International, The Washington Post, Newsweek, and The New York Times. His first newsroom job was in 1984 at the Bowie Blade News, and from there, he went to the Maryland Gazette in Glen Burnie, then the Annapolis Capitol, where his investigative reporting freed from prison two men wrongly convicted in separate murders. You'll be hearing about those amazing stories in this two-part episode. Dan has won more than 30 regional and national journalism awards. In 2012, he was named one of the best columnists in America by Sigma Delta Chi, the National Society of Professional Journalists. Let's meet the amazing Dan Casey. Dan Casey, welcome to The Cultural Scavenger. Welcome, Andy. I love the name, The Cultural Scavenger. Well, thank you very much. It, uh, it took a lot to come up with that. And the reason it did is that every time you think that you've got a great name for a podcast, you go online and you realize that somebody else has captured that name. Yeah. So my wife, who is infinitely smarter than I am, she said, well, what about this? And I looked and no one had it. And it just does kind of, I don't know, it kind of pulls it all together. I think it works pretty well with the eclectic nature of uh, of my guests on the podcast. So thank you for the, the compliment on the, on the name. I was really interested in your conversation with the agent about your parents. And I guess you and he sh- shared that. Michael Levine. Yeah. And the truth is, is that, Children of alcoholics grow up not trusting praise. I can tell you that because we didn't get much. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I never thought about that. But, yeah, I think you're right. Growing up with my parents, and I don't know about you, but if you did something really special or good, it wasn't like, oh, that's you know great, good for you. It was, well, this is expected. This is That's what right. you're supposed to do. Yeah. Right. And unfortunately, you know, you learn those habits when you're growing up. And, yeah. you know, you have to make an effort to praise your own offspring <laughs> and to get them to trust you, too. That was one thing that I never did. I thought I am never going to be like them. I'm just not going to do it. And our kids and we certainly expected them to, to have high aspirations, but. We always praised them when they did did well. I mean, we reveled in in their successes and we told them about it. And mine and probably yours, we just didn't have. Yeah, I think if I had been uh, now, I was. I my father was a huge sports fan, and I was, you know, I had a real hot streak in playing little league when I was like in third or fourth grade, and he was really proud of that. <laughs> you know, I couldn't I couldn't uh, swing a bat without hitting a long ball for for at least one season. And, um, but you know, 
when I moved up into the higher league, I wasn't that good. <laughs> Did his love sort of diminish at no, that point? No, 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 no. It didn't diminish. Uh, listen, you know, he was a good person. He really was. Well, let's talk about that because ink runs in your family, right? Your dad was a newspaper editor, isn't that correct? Yes, he was. So how did you end up following in his footsteps? When was it expected? I was not, no, it wasn't expected. In fact, he told me, don't get into this business. And I, I've told, I, I told my kids that too. My dad was a musician and my mom sang in his band and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a musician. And he did the same thing to me. Don't, both of them did. Don't do this. You, you don't be a musician. Don't go into theater. Don't go into acting. You know, be a lawyer or a doctor. And that's not what I did. I went into theater and acting. I wanted to be a lawyer. And I entered college with the intention to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I did really well for three years. And then my fourth year, I didn't do well at all. I flunked, I think, every class in the first semester of my senior year. And then I was put on academic probation by the University of Maryland. And then I followed up by flunking every class in my in the spring semester of my senior year. And, that, and then they invited me to leave. And, there, <laughs> and there, I didn't have a choice. So I went to work as a messenger on my bicycle in downtown Washington, D.C. And I did that for a couple of years. And I loved that job. In, back in Washington, D.C. in the early 80s, you have to remember there was no email. There was not no digital photography. There was no fax. The faxes machines were just coming online, but they were these yep. big unwieldy things that you had to load special paper in and stuff like that. So as messengers, we made 50% of whatever work we brought into the company and we were radio dispatch. So we didn't have to go out and hustle up the work. The phone calls came in, the dispatcher would dispatch us to here and there to pick up the things. And, you know, if it was a $4 delivery, we made $2. And if it was an $8 delivery, we made $4. And, you know, it was not too difficult to do 50 runs a day. Wow. I'm, I was making on average about a hundred a day in 1980. That's, that was big money. It was, it, my friends were graduating from college and getting jobs for $15,000 a year. And I'm making 25, except yeah. for times when I was down because I was injured because I had been in a, in a an accident and I had a lot of, <laughs> But it was a fun job. And then um, I got fired from the messenger service because I broke like their only rule, which was if you're not going to show up for work, you must call in. And I didn't call it in one day. And that was the third time. And so they, they fired me and I went to work landscaping. And after about a year and a half of backbreaking work doing that, I went back to school part time and then I got my final six credits. During that last semester, I went back to work at the messenger service for three days a week. And during that time I had a bad accident. Uh, and so I quit on the spot. I said, I'm not going to do this ever again. My path was similar, except that I was a singing waiter and it didn't have any kind of potential injury like yours did. What was the name of the restaurant? Oh, it was the country dinner playhouse in Austin. You go back and you listen to some of the early episodes that I've done on the podcast, and that was sort of what I was doing. I was a singing waiter at a, at a dinner theater that was on the star system. It was it was pretty slick, and we would go out and you know sling cocktails, and I would occasionally 
get cast in a show and people would throw more money at us. And it was the same kind of deal. I was making more money as a singing waiter than most people graduating uh, and, and working at a real job. So I thought, well, you know, I got to I got to see this through and see yeah. how it goes. So at that point, how did you get into journalism? My father helped me get a job at the Bowie Blade News, first newspaper. That, so he was the executive editor of a small media corporation that owned the Annapolis paper and the Bowie paper and the Maryland Gazette in Glen Burnie, which was a twice weekly that had like 45,000 circulation. That, that paper was absolutely loved by its um, subscribers. Is it still, is it still around? I think so. It kind of morphed into something called Capital Gazette at the time. Ah, yes. The massacre there, I knew two of the guys that were killed. Yeah, that I remember that. You're telling me that. So I think the Capital still exists as a seven-day-a-week entity. And I believe the Maryland Gazette still exists as a two-day-a-week entity. But the, the executive editor for both just resigned after the the paper was bought by Alden capital and I saw that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think the Maryland Gazette's still there. And I think the capital is still there, even though everybody in the whole country calls it the capital Gazette. It's not. Right. <laughs> At least it's there for the, for the time being. Well, yeah. Yeah. So, so you got a, a job at, was it the blade or at the, the blade. Gazette? Okay. And I got some good clips there. And then I, uh, I was there for six months and I went to the Maryland Gazette where I was the county police reporter for both newspapers. But I worked out of the Gazette office in Glen Burnie. I got some good stories there, some really good stories. And, um, and I started working on the, the best story that I ever wrote, probably, or, or the, the most noteworthy one, which was uh, about a guy who spent... 14 years in prison for a murder that he didn't do. Oh, yeah. I remember you telling me that. This is a great story. Well, on June 28th, 1971, in Glen Burnie, Maryland, which is kind of the armpit of Baltimore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Having lived up that way, yeah. So so it's June 28th, 1971, around 10 or 10.30 at night. uh, Two masked men with... Long-barreled revolvers walked into a 7-Eleven store. Now, if you recall, or if you think of 7-Elevens now, you know they have these safes that, you, that they deposit all the excess money in so that they can't be robbed. But back then, 7-Eleven robberies were a big deal. And they were getting robbed all the time right. because they hadn't implemented these safes. So these two guys walked in with wearing ski masks, carrying revolvers. They were in the process of holding the place up when a customer walked in. He was the father of 10 kids and he ran a filling station and his wife had asked him to stop and get a gallon of milk on the way home for the kids. Man, he walks in on this robbery and he, he advises the two young men who he called boys to put their guns down and to get out of the seven 11. And he said, you know, if you, if you keep this up, you're going to ruin your lives. One of them shot him in the gut. And the bullet pierced his aorta and he bled to death before he was able to get to the hospital, which was only a half a mile away. The two robbers took off. And for a year and a half, that crime went unsolved. A year and a half later, in February of 1973, a woman named Linda Package was 
arrested on heroin distribution charges. And at the time of her arrest, she was visited by the homicide detective who was working on the 7-Eleven murder case. He asked her, did she know anything about it? And she said, yes, I do. I was standing outside the store, kind of walking through the parking lot on the way to the front door so I could buy a pack of cigarettes. I heard a shot, saw two guys run out. One of the guys took his mask off and looked around as he came out the door. And I recognized that guy. It was Guy Gordon Marsh, who Package said she had known for five years because they ran in the same bad crowd in Glen Burnie. I started working on this in 1985, but what I found out in 87 was that Linda Package was not there. She could not have been there because on June 28th, 1971, she was in the Anne Arundel County Detention Center. She was there on a shoplifting charge. Uh, on May 28th, 1971, she was sentenced to 60 days in jail on shoplifting. And she'd served 45 of the day, 45 days of the 60, which meant that she could not have been at that 7-Eleven that night in Glen Burnie. The holdup occurred only 30 days after she was sentenced to 60. I found her and I interviewed her and she denied that she made anything up. And we, we were at a bar. I bought her like four rum and cokes. And when I confronted her with the the jail records and the, the court records, she didn't bat an eye. She said, well, I was there that night. The reason you're confused is that I was outside because a narcotics detective had signed me out of the jail so I could do some undercover drug buys for him. And, uh, you know, inside the bar, I kind of accepted that because I didn't have a, a comeback to it. And it wasn't until late in the in the evening, we're saying goodbye in this gravel parking lot outside of this dingy little bar when something occurred to me. And it, and it was, you know, I said to her, I said, Linda, I don't believe you that you were making undercover drug buys at the time that you witnessed this murder. Because if the cop signed you out of jail, he's responsible for getting you back to jail. And if he's responsible for getting you back to jail, he's not going to let you out of his sight. If he's not going to let you out of his sight then he was there in the parking lot with you. And in that case, they do not need your testimony. <laughs> the cop was there, <laughs> so he couldn't have been there. So it was, yeah. just this, it was just this kind of like little logic stream that rolled out of my mouth. And she looks at me and tears well up in her eyes and she started bawling right there. And then she told me that she wasn't there, that she was in jail, that Romine came to her and promised her a $5,000 reward that the owners of 7-Eleven were offering for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the true murderer or murderers of Charles Erdman. And Linda Package was a heroin addict at this time, and she went for the money. Romine told her where it happened, when it happened. He gave her the details that the store clerk, who couldn't identify either robber because they were masked, had given police about what they wore. And Gordy Marsh was wearing some kind of leather shoes with a distinctive buckle on the side at the time. And she described those shoes to a T in her eventual courtroom testimony, which that took place in July of 1973. She was the only eyewitness that put Guy Gordon Marsh at the scene of the crime. The police had already dropped the charges against Marsh's roommate, a guy named Richard Sirisol, their theory of the case was that these two roommates robbed the 7-Eleven. But 
They learned before the trial started that Richard Sarasol worked the night shift at a General Motors plant north of Baltimore, and he punched in that night, and he punched out after 10 or 10.30 p.m. I don't know, you know what the second shift, how late they were, but... But, so he couldn't have been involved. Well, the, in cops, it. the cops dropped the charges against him. Yeah, and then they proceeded with the the case against Marsh, even though their theory was that it was these two roommates who did it. Uh, wow. And and they already knew it couldn't have been the two roommates because one of them was at work working for, building trucks for General Motors. So Marsh took the stand in his own defense, and his own defense. He pointed to Linda Package and he called her a motherfucking liar. And he said, this is a frame job. And the, you know, the prosecutor's in on it. I think my own lawyer's in on it. And his lawyer's name, by the way, was Vernon Frame. <laughs> frame. That's that's not a really good name for a, an attorney. No, no, it's not. And, and, uh, especially a criminal defense attorney. I mean, that's how good can it get? Especially a guy trying murder cases. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I think Frame was appointed to represent Marsh because Marsh didn't have the resources to afford a murder trial defense. And so right. um, Gordy Marsh got life plus 10 years and he was initially sent to the Maryland Penitentiary in Baltimore, which is the scariest prison I have ever seen. It, I don't even know if it exists anymore. I don't think it does. It was the Supermax prison in Maryland in the uh, 70s and 80s. But it was old. It was really old. And it looked from the outside like the scariest Dracula's castle you've ever seen. I, you know, having lived up there, I think I've driven by it. It looks like a fortress. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's a fortress. And um, even the convenience stores. You know, uh, yeah, the, a medieval fortress. Our fortresses, too, because they had like the convenience stores in that neighborhood had like two inch thick bulletproof glass. And right. every product they sold was behind that glass. <laughs> It was kind of a rough neighborhood. Yeah. So he he ended up transferring to Patuxent Institute, which was probably, you know, 20 miles away. It was in Anne Arundel County. Right. Patuxent Institute was a was a very, very progressive prison founded by psychologists and psychiatrists. And they believed that they could rehabilitate violent criminals. And so that was the purpose of Patuxent Institute. At Patuxent Institute, it did not matter what your sentence was. When the head shrinkers decided you were ready to go be released into society, you would be released and you could get out. And Gordy Marsh watched as all sorts of rapists and murderers and armed robbers played the game at Patuxent and got released, only to be arrested later for committing more crime. <laughs> In fact... He gave me a list, and there were about 45 guys, violent criminals on the list, who had been released from Patuxent and then later rearrested for violent crime. Some of them were arrested for murder. Jesus. That became a huge story, not from me, because, you know, I was a Greenhorn reporter who really didn't know how to write a story like that at that point or, or even investigate it. But you were getting very close at this point. Um, I, I didn't know how to write the Patuxent Institute story. Because it's a scandal. And and that story eventually broke. And I think the Washington Post or the Baltimore Sun, it became an episode of 60 Minutes, too. But anyway, Gordy would go to therapy sessions in Patuxent Institute and watch these. And, and it was group therapy. And these guys would, you know, say they're sorry for their crimes and, you know, express deep 
emotion about it. Gordy would never say he was sorry. I was, I'm innocent. I'm not playing some game to get out here. I am innocent. And, um, and it burned him up that all these guilty guys were getting out. And this innocent guy was still in prison. Uh, while he was in prison, he met a woman named Betty Taub. Betty Taub is the one who walked into the Maryland Gazette one day and kind of put me on this story. She was, she took out an ad in the newspaper offering a reward for information leading to the true murderer or murderers. And then the ad salesman brought her up to my desk and Betty played a key role in, in that whole kind of subsequent investigation. And because I had found a court record about Linda package, the, the shoplifting case, but only the docket was in the courthouse and the actual records were in the Maryland hall of records. And I was not going to have time that day to go to the Maryland Hall of Records and fish those out. Betty happened to call me and I said, I said, well, I can't get to it today. And she's like, well, I can do it. And I said, okay, do it. And she went down there and she called me a couple hours later and she goes, you're not going to believe this. But the court record shows that she was sentenced to 60 days in jail, 30 days before the murder. So then the issue was the jail records. And I was able to get those. And they showed she served 45 days. After the story broke, the police reinvestigated for about four, maybe five weeks. And then they decided, yeah, he was he was convicted based on testimony that was perjured. And yep. so they let him out. And uh, he was on the Sally Jesse Raphael show. I flew up to uh, New Haven with Gordy and Betty to go on that show. It was it was pretty funny. But you got an innocent man out of prison. Yeah, and he served 14 years of the from like 26 or 27 to 42 or 41 yeah. was when he got out. It's the best years of any man's life, Andy. Yeah. He was a burglar and he was he was a drug user. I mean, he he was not a straight he he wasn't a model citizen. Not at all. Didn't you get that there was a kind of a repeat of that, right? Did you know, as I recall, didn't you do this a similar thing for someone else? Yeah. Um, so after the Sally Jesse Raphael show, I achieved a measure of fame in the in the yeah. pri- in the prison community, especially. <laughs> and I have um, I have and I don't have the file with me because it's on my desk at work downtown, but it's about that thick. It's a it's a file that I call my innocent file, and it's full of letters from inmates all over the country. And for those me- that are uh, that are listening, he just gestured that it's about. Two inches thick. Anyway, you know, these guys were all, they were in Virginia. They were in, some of them were on death row. They were in New Mexico. They were in Texas. They were in California. Um, They had all seen me on the Sally Jesse Raphael show. So they sent these letters to the newspaper. And um, there really wasn't anything that I could do for them as a a reporter at a local daily newspaper in, in Annapolis, Maryland. Until I got a visit in the newsroom one day by a guy from that area. And that was, I think, in like 89. And he was a friend of another guy who had been arrested and convicted in a murder that he didn't do. And that prisoner's name was Bernie Ward. In part two of Dan's tale, we'll find out what he did for Bernie Ward as well as how he's earned the Dan on Your Side moniker. 
I'll also lead it off with the unofficial Dan Casey biography you don't want to miss. See you next time. Thank you.